Hey, podcast community, it's Eric, and I've got something exciting for all you online entrepreneurs out there. If you're looking to take your e-commerce store to the next level, you need to check out Aurora Repricer. With Aura, you can effortlessly reprice your Amazon inventory automatically. Ready to elevate your Amazon business? Head over to milwaukeemafia.com slash Aura, that's A-U-R-A, to get started today. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Milwaukee Mafia. I'm Eric Walterpins. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And we've got some exciting news. The Patreon is now officially live, so you can go right now and sign up for that. And I mean right now. Um, You can find it at patreon.com slash milwaukee mafia or you can also go to milwaukeemafia.com and look on the right hand side and there'll be a link that takes you directly to the patreon to join hmm. uh, we do have one episode posted so and we will be bringing out more every other week as this goes on so we appreciate anybody's support and gavin take it away all right yeah, so yeah, sign up for the Patreon. It's just two dollars a month or a dollar per episode. Not these; these will remain free. But you get your bonus uh, content, which is our mailbag feature, and I'm hoping to get some interviews on there as well. That's where I would throw interviews if we get those. So very cool. Yeah, and and just so you know, there's only a, only a slight amount of. Gavin's aristocrat brandy left, so we need to get enough Patreons to get him another bottle of booze up in here. That's true. <laughs> My brandy is running low today. <clears throat> All right, so this time uh, we're going to talk about gambling in the 30s and 40s. Sweet. In the 1930s, the villain of the criminal underworld was Chief Joseph Kaczewski. He made gambling his number one target. Gambling has always been important for organized crime, and Milwaukee in the 1930s was no exception. The syndicate, the mob, whatever, used the services of bookie Louis Simon, who gave a significant cut of his profits to the mob in exchange for protection. Simon used Moe Annenberg's nationwide wire service. Annenberg had been sending the results of horse races to gambling houses all over the country, allowing bookies to accept wagers right up to the time of the pistol and helping gamblers collect payoffs immediately rather than wait for the results to be published the next day. So stop for just one second and clarify because I'm kind of dumb when it comes to gambling. Right up to the pistol? Explain. Right up to the pistol goes off and the horses start running. Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. So now things are being sent over. The wire, like a telegraph. Okay. So it's it's instant results. Because, again, this is 30s and 40s. We don't have TV yet. Radio isn't nationwide. So you, you don't get those instant results if you're not there. But we're going to go back a step. We'll come back to this. But we're going to go back a step. Kaczewski's first target in December 1936 was very unlikely. You know what he went after? No idea. Pinball machines. Okay. They gamble with pinball machines? Yes. Interesting. Along with the city attorney, he drafted an ordinance to outlaw any coin machine that did not dispense merchandise. 
So if it wasn't a vending machine, if you weren't actually getting something for your money, that's not cool. So they they basically said that just because this was a game and not yes. that it was grouped under gambling. It was a game of chance. You might get some points. You might get some free balls. You might get whatever. But you're paying for this game of chance. So you are gambling. Wow. I know. It sounds bizarre. But this was actually pretty normal across the country at this time. Pinball was really being cracked down on. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. It's also a gateway for young people. It tempts them into the lure of gambling because who knows? One day it's a free ball. The next day it's worse. The YMCA was said, we must stop pinball. They knew about a boy who had stolen $30 because he was so addicted to pinball, he had to steal money to keep playing. <laughs> What's, yeah. oh. I, I, it's good to know that people were just as crazy back then as they are now. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well... So, here we go. The city council wasn't crazy about that idea. Now, they said, you could try to ban these machines, but how about this? We got a better idea. How about we license these machines, and then we just take some money for the city? Okay? Okay. They said, you know, we we estimate that pinball... In the average year, takes in $2 million. I have no idea where they're getting that number from. But they're like, why don't we get a cut of that money? This was argued by the district attorney, as well as the attorney for the Pinball Board of Trade. The attorney for the pinball said 12,000 people depended on those machines for their livelihood. Where do they get that number from? Don't know. <laughs> don't know. Okay. But you don't want to put 12,000 people out of a job. And he said, well, and even if you did ban them, you wouldn't stop gambling. Quote, yeah, you can gamble with the devices, but you can also gamble with playing cards. You can gamble with license plates. You could gamble whether or not the king is going to marry Mrs. Simpson. If you want to end gambling, you have to abolish the king as well as pinball. Common Council agreed with that, and they decided to license the machines. Okay. Please tell me that they're not still like there's not still still some sort of tax on pinball today. Not that I know, but I don't really know. Okay. <laughs> Kucheski, he says, this isn't good enough for me. So instead, he's gonna start shutting places down. He says, if I can't get rid of pinball, I'm gonna go after places that are becoming nuisances because of this. So, because of pinball? Yes. <laughs> yes. In June nineteen thirty seven. He shut down establishments with such names as the Columbia Club, the 11th Street Bridge Club, the 744 Club, and the 428 Club. He said these places are troublesome. They have pinball and other forms of gambling. So people were like, hey, 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 why are you shutting this down? Like, you know, like, churches have gambling too? You're not shutting down the churches? And Kuchewski said, well, you're just trying to confuse the issue. You claim everything is gambling. That's different. But it's it's not everything is gambling. Church gambling is okay. <laughs> <laughs> he brought out another tool, the charge of vagrancy. He stationed the vice squad outside known gambling dens and arrested all employees as being unemployed. The chief said, I contend any employees of a gambling outfit, whether he runs a wheel, which we'll get to in a bit, handles a race sheet, or is a spotter on the sidewalk is a vagrant under the law. 
He's not arresting bar owners for pinball machines with this. I mean, because they own a bar. Mm-hmm. They're not unemployed. The DA again said these are really dumb, dumb warrants. It shouldn't be doing this to people, but he did enforce some of them when it was really clear that really they had no income besides gambling. But this only had the effect of scattering the gambling further. Bets were now handled by telephone or by runners instead of people showing up in person. And some operations moved their businesses out into the countryside. One spot was raided enough times that they moved to the county edge. And those who wanted to play craps or roulette took a designated taxi that was parked in the parking lot of the old location to take them to the new location. <laughs> Annenberg's wire service, the telegraph bringing you the, the race wire results, the horse race results, was shut down in November 1939. The police chief said, this is a good thing for Milwaukee that it closed down. He had actively tried to get it closed, even filing an affidavit with the Chicago district attorney who had gone after them. He said that the firm's end would help the police against gambling. Despite constant and diligent efforts on the part of the police to suppress gambling in the form of betting or wagering on the horse races, it has not succeeded in eradicating this evil. Such easy access to racing results makes suppression of the evil most difficult and eradication impossible. So... Just a couple of questions with this. Yeah. At this point in time, is gambling officially illegal? On on a local level. On a local level. It, is this a new thing at this point? Because I'm assuming gambling has existed through the 20s, 1910s, 1920s, and now we're into the 1930s. And are they just now, this guy comes in and says, you know what, we're going to eradicate this? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's, I mean... There's two ways to look at it. One, gambling arrests went up in the 30s and 40s. So either one or two things happened. Either gambling increased quite a bit in the 30s and 40s, or the police cracked down on it harder. And I think it's the police cracked down on it harder. But it was always illegal. Uh, Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I don't know when the law went into effect, but gambling is pretty much illegal. But it wasn't like... As far as you know, it wasn't like 1932. No, 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 no. This wasn't a new law. No. Through pressure on AT&T and Western Union, the telegraph lines were cut, and they no longer ran to Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, or Iowa. And all all of the 28 offices went dark. The press reported that horse gambling dropped. They said it dropped by 25% in Los Angeles, 90% 90% in Chattanooga, and in some places, it disappeared completely, such as Portland. So now, is this just one telegraph system? Yeah. Or are they shutting down literally the whole telegraph systems just so people, like, so you, somebody in Milwaukee couldn't send a telegraph to somebody in Chattanooga, even if it was completely, had completely nothing to do with gambling? They didn't, okay, so they didn't shut down telegraphs. They shut down this guy's company. So okay. he, so he's using the, the lines to send this information. So it's think of it like the internet lines. I mean, if you cut off Spectrum, somebody else can come along and still use the lines they put there. But you just couldn't get Spectrum anymore. Okay. So it's like that. Like they cut him off from using them. Okay. 
But he was just using them for gambling purposes, basically. That's what he was. He might have been using them for other things, but that's what he got his money Money from. from. Yeah. Okay. So Mo Annenberg, the guy running this wire, he was originally from Milwaukee. He was targeted on tax violations and had partners in Milwaukee who faced legal trouble. The secretary treasurer of his company was charged with aiding, innovating taxes, aiding his friend. Um, His accountant in Milwaukee made false statements before a grand jury. And Louis Simon, the guy who was providing the race results in Milwaukee, he was caught in the web, too, when it was found out that he had bribed a witness to lie on Annenberg's behalf. A lot of people got in trouble when this all kind of came apart. The removal of Mo Annenberg was a serious blow to the bookie profession. Results now had to come in by expensive, long-distance telephone calls, or they had to wait until the next day when things were in the newspaper. Annenberg ended up pleading guilty to tax evasion and died in prison. His son, Walter Annenberg, went on to rehabilitate the family name. He created such notable magazines as TV Guide and Seventeen. Worked out worked out well in the end, I guess, besides the dying in prison part. <laughs> Round two. Now we're in the 40s. July 1948. Pressure was put on the police by the newspaper to investigate policy wheels. I'll explain this. Policy wheels in the Sixth Ward and allegations that some members of the police were being paid off by gamblers there. The newspaper said there were 11 policy wheels in operation, an increase of four just since the last year, and they were making a million dollars a year in profit. They also pointed out the large number of police officers that were stopping by Smokey's Smoke Shop, which is a great name for a smoke shop. Perfect name for a smoke shop. Police Chief John Polzine, who had replaced Kuchewski, responded to these allegations, saying any officer who was there was there in the line of duty at the time, and that... Smokey Gooden, the owner of Smokey's Smoke Shop, may have had a police record, but he hadn't been involved in gambling in 15 years. Leave him alone. So what is policy? Policy, uh, also known as numbers, is a low-cost gambling where a better picks three digits to match those that will be randomly drawn the following day. The game was common in the black and Cuban communities, um, also, the Puerto Ricans had their own variation of it. And what it is, is like you would go and you'd say, I pick the number one, two, three. And there'd be a set way that the number gets drawn. It would be like the next day in the newspaper, it would be how much money did a certain racetrack take in a, in a certain day. It'd be some number that would be printed in the paper every day or every week or whatever. So there was no way this could be rigged. You would just have to see if that number was right the next day if it was you get your money back now your odds aren't very good because guessing a three-digit number out of a thousand numbers it's not very good Mm -hmm. but if you do win you win pretty good and you only have to pay um, between like five cents and 25 cents to bet so it's really cheap so a lot of people did this every day policy had been in milwaukee since at least 1870 so it had been been hanging out for a while And Milwaukee had its own variation. They did not use the three-number system that most used. They just used a flat 78-number system where you only had to pick one number and they would randomly draw out of 1 to 78. Why 78? I have no idea. So this wasn't being printed in the newspaper or something like that? They were just literally drawing a number? Nope. (laughs) This is what they would do. They would get a big metal drum. They had pieces of rubber hose 
And on the rubber hose, they would write 1 to 78, put them in the drum, shake the drum up, and pull out a piece of rubber hose and read the number. And that's who wins. So it's a simpler system. It's also, and there's no evidence they did this, but it's a really easy to rig system. <laughs> because, I mean, you, you got to trust the guy pulling the number. It isn't pulling some kind of trick on you. And I would think, I mean, so you could pick whatever number you wanted. So at any given time, would there be like 30 winners? Yeah. There could be like just a ton of winners. And what did they just divvy the money up between however many people won? So the less people won, maybe the more money you'd get. Um, I mean, it could, I guess it depends what the ground rules are. I mean, it could be divided up evenly, but a lot of times what it would be is there was a set return that was guaranteed. And the problem with that is if too many people picked it, the game would go bankrupt. Yeah. Um, which did happen from time to time. So there apparently some of them were relying on, we guarantee you you're going to get 100 times returned or whatever. It's good if you're the gambler. It's not good if you're the guy running the game yeah. and everybody picks the same number. <laughs> but usually that's not going to happen. All right. So the district attorney asked the judge to start a John Doe investigation into gambling. He says, okay, first of all, we don't want gambling. But second of all, we definitely don't want police looking the other way or taking bribes. If they're walking into the smoke shop and not doing anything about it, something suspicious is going on here. Stop for a moment again and explain what a John Doe investigation is. Uh, so John Doe investigation is this thing that's unique to Wisconsin. It's a Wisconsin-only thing. Interesting. Which it's basically like a grand jury, except the difference is a grand jury is... Somebody is suspected of a crime. A bunch of people come in and testify. If they decide there's enough evidence to charge the person with the crime, they charge them with the crime. With the John Doe, because as the name implies, John Doe, there isn't actually a target. Okay. So people come in and they testify and they take this information and then they decide who and what charges are going to come out of it. There might not be any. But they don't know who they're going to charge when they start the investigation. They only know when they're done. So can you give me an example of this? Like, so is basically, if I'm understanding you right, they're going to bring in a bunch of people that are going to testify that they gambled. Yes. And then based on what all these people testify, they decide, okay, who must be the person in charge of this gambling ring? Is that kind of? Yeah, that would be one way. way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, if after they hear enough testimony, if they think there's enough evidence to charge somebody with a gambling offense or whatever it is that they're, you know, thinking of charging them with. And sometimes they find totally unrelated things. There's a lot of times with the John Doe's where somebody will come in and testify. And here they're looking into gambling, and that's really, spoiler alert, that's all that's going to come out of this is gambling. But sometimes you'll call somebody in and they'll just go rambling off. And all of a sudden, your thing is off the rails, and you're looking into something completely different. Okay. So, they're they're a very strange thing that only Wisconsin has. And uh, the other question is, and, and they're secret, unfortunately. Do does this still do they still do John? Don't yeah, they do. Really? Yeah, they do. And they're the only state that does it. That yep. is so bizarre. And it does kind of seem. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like it's kind of like a shady way of doing. I don't know. It's, yeah. I mean, 
Kind of. Yeah, I mean, I guess. It's actually not that different than like how Congress does investigations. Because they'll just call in people. Like when they're holding a hearing, they'll just call in people until they find something. Yeah, I suppose. It's just strange that they're the only state that does it. It is strange, yeah. Okay, so first witnesses kind of supported the idea that yes, there's gambling. And yes, the police are taking payoffs. They called in a former police officer. And he said that he had received $85 in vacation presents from four gamblers. He said that he didn't promise them anything. He didn't even say he would give them police protection. He just took the money and walked away. However, people found, the people at the John Doe hearing found his answers evasive and jailed him for 10 days on charges of contempt. In the next few weeks, the probe called 35 witnesses and typed up 1,500 pages of testimony. That's just the beginning. Booker Page, great name. Booker Page said he was having trouble with Joe Harris and Smokey Gooden, two gamblers, over rumors he allowed press to snap pictures in his backyard, which was next to these gambling joints. Harris and Gooden were original gangsters, running policy as far back as the 1920s. Harris had several men working for him, including his own cousin. Smokey Gooden dropped out of gambling when he went broke in 1933, but he still hung around with everyone else. Those two men had since become enemies, and each believed that the other was trying to send him to the penitentiary. Booker Page heard that Harris had turned evidence against the po- into the police and found it strange that Harris seemed to know everyone who was subpoenaed before the John Doe panel before they knew they were subpoenaed before the John Doe panel. He stopped in at Harris's bar two hours after being subpoenaed, and Harris already knew about it. Booker Page said Smokey Gooden had no policy wheel at that time, but Harris had one called the Delmar and one called the Santa Anita. They all have these weird names, which were more on the level than the rest of them. Despite having no wheel of his own, Gooden took money from others for protection that had little effect in thwarting raids. He did not know who was the head of the policy racket, but he had heard it was either Smokey Gooden or Cornelius Ard, known as the Big Hand. Booker Page said he did not involve himself much with the wheels anymore, but one time he had won $900. So it, this is funny, like these these drums that they're pulling these numbers out of, they, they're all, they're called wheels and they all have these fancy names. So they're like, oh, did you gamble with here, you know, with the Delmar wheel or the sand? And like they're just these metal drums, but they they sound cool like that. And each one with a different name would be tech, probably run by a different person. Basically. Usually, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. One gambler was called to testify about gifts that he had made to the police. He said that he was a prolific gambler. He couldn't really deny it. He'd been arrested for gambling 14 times. (laughs) He remained there for 40 minutes on the stand, and as he left, he was smiling. This was private, so nobody really knew what he had said. Did he crack? Did he give up his friends? People were worried. Another person testified that they had helped Joe Harris in his policy game. Quote, when Joe told me the heat was coming, I got afraid and quit. He said the newspaper took my picture going into Smokey's. When asked if Smokey was the policy king, the gambler said, I don't see how he could be king. He's so poor. When asked about police payoffs, they said, I don't think anybody could have influence with the police the way they chased us. That's the reason I left. Sometimes we'd run like rabbits to get away. So I don't see what protection anybody got. They chased all of us. If anybody was the policy king, it was Joe Harris. 
He has more money and property than anyone. More people are called in. Smokey Gooden gets called in. The Big Hand gets called in. Guys running wheels known as the Phoenix, the Keystone, and the Top Row get called in. These are all the names of the wheels. An accountant gets called in. After this point, they switch. These were all people in the black community. Now they're switching to the Jewish community. They're like, we're going to expand our gambling probe to the Jewish community. That's where the real money is. They interview one guy, and he said, yeah, I'm sort of a bookkeeper for a man named Joe Krasno, who the newspaper called Milwaukee's Gambling Emperor. (laughs) He kept accounts of the gambling business, collected winnings, paid on bets. Together, they had four telephones at their horse betting parlor and a fifth telephone that ran directly to Lewis Simon, the guy with the horse race wire. They paid Simon $82.50 a week for that service, which is pretty good money in the 40s. This guy said he was paid 30% of whatever Kresno's business earned, so that's not bad. Bets typically never ran any higher than $100 each, which, again, $100 in the 40s was a pretty good bet. Louis Simon comes in. He actually hands over his books for the panel to look at. His tax returns revealed that he had amassed $319,000 from his gambling wire business in just in 1948. And I did the math. <laughs> That's over $3 million today. Holy cow. So he doesn't even have to actually do any gambling. He just has to run a wire to people's houses or you know or they call him and he tells them what's on the wire simon's service was an aid to gamblers but the wire by itself was not actually illegal it was just a telegraph wire which is not a crime so he had no fear of sharing his business transactions he wasn't gambling he was just providing information outside the courtroom he was kind of sad he said you know gambling actually isn't that big in milwaukee there's more gambling in cities a third of the size And here, you don't even see any of the rough stuff that you see in other cities. Milwaukee's not a problem. And he knew what he was talking about. Just earlier that same year, the FBI had put a wiretap on mobster Charles Cherry Nose Joy. Cherry Nose. It's a great great mob name. (laughs) And he found out that Joy's wife had gone to Miami with Louis Simon. Don't know what's up with that. But this guy's definitely hanging out with some... Some big mobster guys. Why he's going to Miami with the dude's wife, I don't know. At this point in the probe, they've now had 175 witnesses. Wow. The court reporters had typed up 5,000 pages of testimony. They were still waiting for a few more subpoenas. They call in David Kohler. David Kohler said he operated a book upstairs. Operating a book just means he's a bookie. Mm Mm-hmm. Operated a book at his tavern, and he was paying Louis Simon $57.50 in cash each week to get race results. This is another guy, you know, I mean, if every one of these guys is paying this guy 50 bucks a week, he's doing really good. Yeah. I'm curious, and I, you probably don't know this answer, but, mm-hmm. but so these are horse races, which yep. are obviously not happening in the Milwaukee area. They're not happening in Milwaukee, no. Okay, so he's getting a telegraph with these results. Is Are these horse races a big enough thing that people would actually find the results out some other way than if it was coming through this telegraph wire? Is there a reason why this dude couldn't just be like, oh yeah, it said these horses won. and Or was these horse races a big enough deal 
that they would print them in the newspaper or something in Milwaukee. They, they printed them in the newspaper. Okay. So horse yeah. racing was just that big of a thing in the 30s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or I think we're in the 40s now. We're in the they? 40s yeah. now. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, there was a, a paper called the Sporting News that specifically, that's all it did was print horse race results or, you know, baseball results and all that stuff, which, you know, you could just use because you really like sports. But, uh, you know, gamblers needed to know those numbers too. Why, why, what was the purpose of, and you may have said this before, what was the purpose of the Telegraph if they could just look at that magazine? I mean, just so they could get the results faster. Just to get, just to get it faster, which I know it does seem kind of silly. I mean, it seems like you're spending a lot of money to get it, what, maybe a 12 hours, 24 hours faster. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it'd be like 24 hours tops. Yeah. Uh, I don't disagree with you, but apparently having instant results is worth something. Kohler had four unlisted telephones, which, again, pretty standard for gambling. He claimed that he had actually quit booking. He says, I'm not involved in that anymore. I rent my space out to someone else. He did show his taxes and and showed that he had made, in the last year, $45,000 as a bookie, which translated to today's money. It's $435,000. Kohler is not going to come back again in our story, but I'll just side note here. Um, he ends up getting interviewed in 1963 by the FBI because it turns out that a lot of these Milwaukee gamblers who are, happen to be Jewish are friends with Jack Ruby. And Jack Ruby, if you do not know, is the guy who shot Lee Harvey Oswald and Lee Harvey Oswald is allegedly the guy who shot JFK. Correct. So when they are when the FBI is investigating like the JFK assassination, they went around and they interviewed all these Jewish gamblers who knew Jack Ruby because Jack Ruby was originally from Chicago. So so David Kohler ends up coming up for that. It has nothing to do with the mob. So it's, we're not going to talk about it in the sixties, but he does come back later as just a guy that the FBI would talk about and get ideas about who knew the different Jewish gamblers and was Jack Ruby here. And he's like, yeah, I knew Jack, whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he didn't have anything useful to offer. Uh, they, they interviewed or, you know, called in to testify a bookie who worked out of the Astor hotel. Uh, he said he had started as a chauffeur and worked his way up in the gambling business. Other people are called in Oscar Plotkin, who runs the clock bar. Um, Jack Ania who has been mentioned in the past, and he will come up again. Uh, very notable mob guy who eventually will be killed. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Stay tuned for maybe not too much longer. We're in the in the 40s, and he dies in the 50s, so it's okay. coming. They interview Joe Latona. Joe Latona was only loosely connected to gambling, but he later gets in trouble because he runs a brothel out of a bar called the wind blew in. <laughs> the wind blew in. Yeah. Which That's a great name. That's a great name. <laughs> they talked to Dominic Pachuro, who everybody called Lem Sputter. I don't know what Lem Sputter means, but that's what they called him. Uh, so he had been involved in gambling throughout the 1940s as part of what was called the Ogden Social Club. And the Ogden Social Club was this floating game in the Italian community and they would be like a, at a person's house and they'd get busted and they'd move it to another person's house. They get busted and you keep getting moving, you know, within like a three block radius. And it's really weird because 
there's no legitimate purpose for this club. I mean, they're running roulette wheels and craps games and stuff like that. But they actually like incorporated it. There are there are corporation records. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of the Ogden Social Club. So I don't know why you would incorporate something you knew was not legal, but they did. And yeah, and a lot of not a notable guys were caught up in that. I could probably, I would think you would, if you incorporated it, it kind of gives it a face of like, like it is something legitimate. Maybe. But then again, at the same time, you're leaving a paper trail that clearly states that some sort of club exists and they don't know where it exists. Yeah. Whatever. So that's, yeah. that is kind of bizarre too. Yeah. Like, a, a lot of notable guys were arrested there. The place was raided at least nine times in its different locations. Um, not going to go through the list of guys who were all arrested there. One of them who was, though, was John Trilliegi, who, if you remember the name, you've got a great memory. Uh, he was one of the guys involved in the Reno heist. Oh, okay. So he was also a guy who hung out at the gambling clubs. Testifying after Lem Sputter was cigar store owner Jaime the Bum Blaufarb. I <laughs> uh, don't know anything about him. I just like that his name is Jaime the Bum. Jaime <laughs> the Bum. Yeah. Sometimes nicknames are just, just, I don't know. Jaime the Bum. Kind of wish you could get a hold of the, like the story behind the, some of the nicknames. Yes. Just to find out, like, how do you get that name? They were still waiting on the last three gamblers to be found. They were in hiding. Joe Krasnow, the guy who was Milwaukee's emperor of gambling, was in hiding. His brother Maurice, known as Chunky, was hiding. And Harry Glinberg, known as O'Malley, was in hiding. The former police officer came back to purge himself of contempt charges because he was sick of getting sent to jail for contempt. (laughs) This time he said that his story about taking money was crap. He said, that didn't really happen. I just made that up. He's like, I was mad at the inspector, my boss. Um, I worked hard at the police department. I was there for nine years, and this inspector let me go, and I'm mad about it. And I think, you know, if if me saying this is going to make things hard on him, then I'm going to say this to make it hard on him. But it didn't happen. So now now who knows? Did it happen and he's denying, or did it not happen? And I don't know. Mm -hmm. He's just complicating it further. Joe Krasno, the Milwaukee emperor, surrenders. He testifies that he took in $131,000 in gambling the past year. I did not do the math this time, but significant amount of money. But he says, this wasn't all profit. Some of it I had to pay to my brother, Chunky. (laughs) And some of this money I made, I later lost when I went and gambled it back myself. (laughs) So he's like, it sounds like a lot of money, but I'm I'm also a gambler. Not a very strong argument. Like, well... I would have made a lot of money, but I am a gambling addict myself. Mm-hmm. And I lost it all gambling. <laughs> so. Yeah. So the effects of the probe finally came down uh, when assessments were handed out against different operators. This is the first part. So um, George Jackson, who doesn't even come up, I don't know like who he is, but he apparently was in the story somewhere and I just didn't didn't see it. He ends up owing $17,000 in back taxes, which is $164,000 today. Other people included Joe Harris, who 
owed $6,700, or $65,000 today. And another man named Fred Harold, who owed $4,200, or $41,000 today. Um, pretty significant back tax bills yeah. there. Nice payday for the government. Yeah. The judge released a 51-page report with his conclusions, showing that, yes, there was gambling, there was a lot of gambling, but the police weren't involved. He goes, look at how many times these guys were arrested. Clearly, the police were doing their job. I like how the how they, they're trying them for doing something they say is illegal. Yep. And then they're like, yes, you were doing something illegal, but you still made money doing it, so mm-hmm. you got to pay us taxes. <laughs> like, Well, right. You know, like, what should be happening is you should be taking all that money back and giving it to the people that spent the money doing the illegal thing. But then again, I guess at the same time. They were also doing something illegal. I don't know. But it's just bizarre. Yeah. Some of the other guys, uh, some that was that was the, the black community there. The Jewish community, they did sort of a similar thing. They revoked licenses for taverns, um, some of whom moved to the outside of the city and got their licenses back in another mm-hmm. surrounding area. So then they moved out of the county. What most of them did was just, Gave the license to somebody else and continued on with their business. One guy gave the license, he got his license revoked, and then he had his nephew apply for the license, and his nephew got it. And they said, we're going to give you this license, but if we catch you gambling, it's immediately revoked. Not even a warning, it's gone. Pretty obvious to everybody that he was only applying because his uncle couldn't apply. Mm -hmm. So... Didn't really slow down any of the bar owners. They just kind of handed it over to somebody else. They just figured out a way around it. Yeah. So um, other people, again, are getting hit with back taxes anywhere between $100,000 and $200,000. A little bit higher in the the Jewish community. And if you were caught failing to register as a gambler, you would have to pay $750 to the IRS. And I know what you're thinking. Why would you register as a gambler? When it's illegal to gamble. When it's illegal to gamble. But this was the weird thing that they did is you would have to have what was called a wagering stamp. And it would cost you, I don't know, 50 bucks or something. It wasn't much. And so if you didn't have it, you'd get in trouble for not having the wagering stamp. You'd get the $750 fine. Mm -hmm. But the problem is if you do have the wagering stamp, Everybody knows that you're a gambler. <laughs> so it's kind of dumb. A similar, there was a similar thing later where you'd have to get a stamp if you were dealing in cocaine, which, same thing. <laughs> if you get caught and you don't have the stamp, you get fined. But who in their right mind would buy a stamp saying, yeah, I deal cocaine? <laughs> I'm not sure about the cocaine one, but the gambling one later on, the Supreme Court struck that down. No, and just said no. Yeah, they said they said that's not right because it basically amounts to somebody, the government forcing somebody to admit their guilt, which you know, yeah, it that denies their rights. Be yeah, be be fined or admit you're guilty of something. Yeah, I guess they're like you're already confessing to a crime before you even commit the crime. They're like that we can't we can't enforce that. So that gets struck down. Would later. they would they use these stamps? As a way of, like, as evidence or something, if they brought somebody in and they're like, clearly this person is a gambler because they have a stamp. I'm not they, aware. I'm not aware of them that. using that. But it's, but again, like, 
it, I am sure that it didn't help their case because didn't. everybody knows who has a stamp. Like it's a public thing you have to pay for. Joe Harris, who was the policy king, dies in 1960. Um, at his funeral, a local reverend gave the eulogy and said that he was a good man in the community. Every black church in the city enjoyed his being a benefactor. He had given a lot of money back to the community. And there are two ways that this can be interpreted. And I'm taking this actually from uh, Matt Priggy, who is a Milwaukee historian. And he says one of two things can be taken from this. Either, yeah, he gave back to these churches, but he's also the guy who's taking all the money from the community from these gamblers. That's not necessarily a great thing. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it is a good thing because these guys are going to gamble anyway. It's not his fault they're gambling addicts. Yeah. So it's better that they're gambling with him in the black community instead of going somewhere else and giving their money to white people. Which, you know, maybe that's a weird way of putting it, but there's, there's a point there too. Yeah, that is very true. I mean. Yeah. I mean, now people, I don't know how serious they are, but, you know, they kind of joke about now they give their gambling money to, like, the Indians and stuff. Mm, yeah. People, they're like, oh, dang it, those Indians take all my money. But uh, so it's kind of like that. The police officer who was either telling the truth or telling a lie, not really sure, his life took a downward turn. After leaving Milwaukee, he became a private investigator in Florida, but then he was accused of breaking into a woman's apartment and attempting to rape her which is heavily frowned upon. Uh, the jury deliberated for two hours, uh, and he was convicted and sent to prison. Do not break into people's houses and assault them. Not cool. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. Gambling, or people's interest in gambling, has never really gone away. People still like gambling. Mm -hmm. In 1987, so we're way in the future, 1987, a bill was passed creating the Wisconsin State Lottery. I was going to ask this question. Okay. So that 1987, huh? Yeah. That's. And the Wisconsin State Lottery is very close to what these guys are doing with the policy wheels. I mean, now that I'm, you know, they're not pulling one number out of a drum, but it's the same concept. You, yeah, you pick a couple of numbers and see what comes up. And that was why I was going to ask that question because that's exactly what it sounded like. Like this essentially just became the lottery. Yeah. You know. So after yeah, after decades of this being a crime, the state was like, well, heck, why don't we just get we, in on this? We can just profit from it instead. Yeah. Well, it took them until the 80s to figure that out. I have no idea. But, but 87 is when Wisconsin State Lottery started. That's your fun fact. <laughs> All right, I made it through my notes. So, my questions on this is, and I th part of this I think you've already kind of explained. Sure. So, this sounds like it was a massive, massive crackdown on gambling mm -hmm. at this point in time. Like, just a massive trial and everything with all the witnesses and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, but I think you kind of said... This really didn't slow down gambling whatsoever. I mean, they, probably, no. they made a ton of arrests, but all the bar owners and everybody just kind of found a way to continue right on after. Yeah, that. I mean, the guys who got hit with the big tax payments that they had to make, I'm sure that made them second-guess themselves. But it isn't like the people who were gambling stopped gambling. They just found a new place. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you think that this slowed down the growth, like seeing that all these arrests going on? made people hesitant to get into the 
gambling industry? Maybe. Like I don't know. Would you say like by the? I mean, we're in the forties, so let's say by the fifties has gambling slowed down? Maybe in, in Milwaukee. Maybe it's and it's so hard to tell because when it's not making headlines, it's hard to gauge how much gambling the there is. is. So you know it's there, but it it wasn't at least as big in the news. Right. But that might just be because there wasn't this massive investigation yeah. going on. I mean, if I had like a, a random sampling of people's rap sheets, I guess I could probably figure out from that, you know, how how much gambling people were doing in the 50s. I don't have that. So unless it was... Something where the newspaper felt the need to report. Because the newspaper is not going to report every person who gets arrested for gambling. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, unless they consider it a big noteworthy event, it's it's not going to really come up on my radar. Because I don't, I can only work with what really, well, with the paper primarily. But the FBI doesn't really show up at this point. They get into the gambling game in 1961. So they'll come back. Um, the gambling will come back into focus in the 60s. But through the 50s, I don't really know whether it was big or small or what it was yeah and you can't really tell like it could have been bigger it just could be that nobody was getting arrested for it because it wasn't really a focus right of of the police and there's i mean there's all kinds of loopholes i mean by the 50s vegas was up and running so you could go to vegas and gamble um the horse races you could gamble as long as you were on site so if you were in Milwaukee, all you had to do was drive like an hour and a half down to Chicago. Uh, you've been to Chicago enough times. You've seen the signs that like say off-track betting. Mm-hmm. Those have been around forever. So people could t- could do that. You couldn't see that's the thing. You couldn't gamble in Milwaukee on those races because that's illegal. But if you do it at the track, totally fine. That is so weird. Yeah. I don't know why I don't, I mean, I'm not familiar with Illinois laws, so I don't know why that's okay, but apparently that in Illinois, they made that where horse racing was okay. I'm not sure. As long as you did it there. So then now we're, are we getting close to being in the fifties? Like pretty close. Yeah. So like gambling's not really a thing in the fifties. So what? It's not a major thing. No. What is the thing? What are we going to hear about a lot in the fifties? Well, we got a couple hijackings. We got a we got one hijacking for sure. We've got a scam on a on a bankruptcy fraud, and uh, you know, and a couple murders. A couple murders. Throw a couple murders in there. Maybe maybe we'll take a detour and talk about cheese for a week. I don't know. Cheese? Yeah. That, what does that mean? When the mob was involved in the cheese business. I think we should definitely talk about that because that seems really interesting. Okay, that's like so, I think that's mostly 1940s, so, so we could probably throw that in soon. All right, cool. All right, I think that's all I got for questions on this one, unless you got something else to throw out. No, I mean, this isn't... If you didn't notice, this isn't really a mob-heavy story this week, but just kind of throwing it out there, you know, it's a, it's still a big crime story happening at the time, and and even though they focused more on um, the black community and the Jewish community, I mean, there were still mob guys sort of kind of on the edge of this. And so it's, it's not prob- like they weren't gambling. They were involved in it, too. They just weren't called in as much for whatever reason. And you never know how much... How much money they could have been skimming money off of all those groups of gambling? It could be, you know, could be. So, yeah, they were known for doing things like that. So, yeah. All right. Well, I think we can wrap this one up. 
hit them with your contact information? Sure. Uh, you can email milwaukeemafia at gmail.com. Uh, I'm getting better about checking it. For a while there, it took two or three days before I would check it, I mean, which still isn't that bad, but I'm um, trying to get better about that. Um, you can go to milwaukeemafia.com and find all the great things there. Or you can go to facebook.com slash milwaukeemafia, which uh, I post to pretty regularly, and you can message me there. Facebook likes to bury it, but I added an automatic message. So it'll tell you that the best way to reach me is to email me at milwaukeemafia at G- or milwaukeemafia at gmail.com. So uh, I will respond to the Facebook messages eventually. It just doesn't tell me when I get them. So Cool. And just again, pounding the Patreon into, into everybody's head. The Patreon is available. Yes. And it is at patreon.com slash milwaukeemafia. Or go to MilwaukeeMafia.com and click on the link on the right-hand side of the page. And as always, please, if you enjoy this podcast, leave us a rating on your favorite podcast player. And we will be back in two weeks with a new free episode. Yep. And stay tuned. Join the Patreon and you'll have an uh, episode for you next week. So thanks, everybody, and we'll see you in two weeks. All right. Have a good night. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.